Everyone talks about getting more traction, tires that get more traction, weighting your pegs to get more traction, sliding your weight forward and back, all to get more traction. But sometimes, sometimes less traction is actually beneficial. And today on our exclusive Rider Skills, we've got Bill Dragoo to tell us about times when less traction is our friend and how to get comfortable in the low traction zone. I'm Jim Martin. This is Adventure Rider Radio. Stay with us. We got a good one for you. Best Rest Product is the maker of the Cycle Pump, the best tire inflator for motorcyclists. It'll inflate your flat tire in less than three minutes. Made in the USA, comes with a lifetime warranty. They also distribute Googletech filters, cyclepump.com. And Green Chili Adventure Gear offers American-made heavy-duty luggage systems for all types of motorcycles. You can turn any dry bag into luggage using their strapping system. And of course, Green Chili Adventure Gear is tested in extreme weather and terrain to withstand the abuse that adventure riding gives it. Tough, reliable gear, greenchiliadv.com. Well, I'm Bill Dragoo. I own and operate DART. That's Dragoo Adventure Rider Training. I'm based in Norman, Oklahoma. And uh, we're kind of in a pause session right now between uh, our fall and moving into spring. Just uh, enjoying a a little downtime. Most of the time, traction is king when it comes to motorcycling. But there are times when having less traction is actually your advantage. And today, that's what we're talking about. When less traction is better, and also just how to go about getting the most from it on our rider skills. Rider Skills is an exclusive program we developed here at Adventure Rider Radio designed to give you tools that can improve your riding skills both on and off-road. Now, of course, this segment is not meant to be a substitute for professional training. These are ideas and concepts that should you choose to try, you're doing so at your own risk. Now, we're very lucky to have some of the top rider trainers in the world on this show. And the reason they are top is because they've spent untold hours training, learning, taking courses, testing, and developing better skills to ride more efficiently, and then to find ways to teach others what they've learned. So on our rider skills, we benefit from their hard work and dedication to the sport. And for that, we thank them. For our rider skills today, we have Bill Dragoo from Dart. Now, Bill is a certified BMW factory-trained off-road instructor. He is also a certified Motorcycle Safety Foundation rider coach, and he's a moto journalist. He's also a certified flight instructor, a skydiver, and a scuba diver. He's competed and won in motocross, cross-country mountain biking, sailboat racing, and adventure riding. Bill, welcome back. Thanks, Jim. It's good to be back. What do you mean you're, you're in a pause? You mean just because of winter? Yeah. We, you know, the... We get into colder and less predictable times of year here in Oklahoma when we get past uh, October, and we were quite busy going through October, and uh, so we don't have scheduled classes on uh, the routine basis now that we did throughout the spring and the summer. Uh, instead, we're just doing private training and custom courses uh, that are organized on a more impromptu basis. Now, so you you managed to go through COVID this year and work out your system for training with COVID? Not with COVID, but you understand what I'm saying. Everything is with COVID, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, I mean, not really with it. You know, it's not with you, but I mean, dealing with the possibilities. Yes. Uh, we were essentially stopped going through the majority of May. Uh, and then things kind of freed up a little bit. People began to take different perspectives. People were getting antsy and wanting to get outdoors more. So uh, that really loaded our late May and June courses because uh, we had a lot of transfers into the next available course. We'd actually canceled those early ones or reduced them to very small sizes because of uh, number limitations in our local area, keeping uh, groups sizes uh, below 10. 
Uh, once we opened that back up, we still would try to be respectful of uh, everyone's position on COVID and maintain our distancing as well as we possibly could. And then we broke our groups, even though the class sizes overall were larger, we kept uh, the, the groups with uh, one or two instructors and the sizes around 10 or less in, in each particular group. I guess it's not that difficult, is it, in your industry? Because, I mean, other than cleaning and and things like that, those basic things you have to do, you're already outdoors, you're already separate. I mean, people have got helmets on. There's a lot of protection there that just comes with our, our sport. There is. It's, it is interesting that it's safer to be out riding your motorcycle than it is walking down the aisles at Walmart. Oh, I like that. <laughs> <laughs> I like that. <laughs> That's good. <laughs> well, today we're going to chat about when less traction is more. And I know you've got a lot of information for us on this, but I was kind of thinking, I think what we should, we should probably start off with is what are the two types of friction that we deal with when it comes to motorcycling or, or even driving cars for that matter? Well, there are different ways of saying it, but some of the more common terms that you hear are static friction, which is uh, even more commonly mentioned as stiction. And you can think of a fork uh, that's in a static position where you're just sitting on the motorcycle and you want to compress that fork. Sometimes you feel an initial breakaway where that slider begins to move past the seal. There's a certain amount of gripping there. And once that motion is started, the fork continues to um, move up and down with much more ease than it initially took to, to start it to move. So that would be static friction or one example of it. Uh, another example of static friction would be your foot on the ground if you drug it lightly towards you um, versus pressing and then starting to move it. You might feel a bit of a breakaway there as uh, the sole of your shoe began to release and move across the surface, uh, whatever that surface might be. And then dynamic or kinetic friction is that what is taking place once that foot or your tire sliding on pavement begins to actually slide. And sometimes that's confused with a rolling tire. Uh, Some people feel like that a a rolling tire would be um, um, kinetic or dynamic friction, and it actually isn't because as that rubber meets the road, it is only meeting it in one at one point. It's not slipping as long as there's no lateral motion or braking or acceleration force to to cause it to move one way or the other. Mm. I was thinking another example might be if you were going to pull somebody that's stuck out of the mud or even a, even a toboggan, for instance, you pull on it if it's heavy and you've got to put a lot of pull, a lot of pull, that's static friction. It's holding back from you trying to move it. And then once it jerks and starts to move, now you're dealing with dynamic or kinetic friction. That's a real good example. Um, in fact, of course, the freezing of, a, of a, a sled, you know, the runners to the surface could even increase it beyond that. But there's a, a process called cold welding. Uh, if you actually look at the uh, on a microscopic level at a, um, an object on another object, um, it might be your fingers on a tabletop, a wooden tabletop or something. Uh, as smooth as the table might seem to be as you brush your fingers lightly across it, there's, there are actually microscopic pores or, or undulations, irregularities in that table and in your fingers as well. And these things tend to interlock. That interlocking tendency is, uh, is a form of cold welding. Once you begin to let your fingers slide, then it would require more downforce to apply the same amount of 
lateral motion to that table if you're trying to push it across a room. So then traction or, or friction that we're talking about here is almost on a microscopic level, these little things interlocking with one another. It actually is. So what, when you're looking at a tire sticking to the road, you're talking about the ability of the two surfaces to almost engage with one another. Yes. Um, you know, uh, and when you say on the road, of course, uh, it's more distinctive on pavement. The transition is more abrupt going from static to dynamic friction on pavement than it is in the typical off-road environment. Uh, and that can change with moisture content, with uh, the size of any aggregate that might be on the uh, surface off, off pavement, um, you know, whether it's sand, uh, grass uh, on pavement or grass on hard pack. All of these things create different uh, dynamics as far as uh, your tire's ability to maintain traction, as we all know. So it sounds like we're just talking about very technical things here, very scientific, and and somebody's eyes may be glazing over. Why is it beneficial for the rider to understand these two types of friction? Well, I think that it's, um, you know, as I said, everybody's pretty much aware that these things exist. But what does that mean to us as a rider? Well, surface assessment is one important reason in, in my book for finding what traction you have. If we're riding off pavement, uh, let's say through the woods and there are leaves and, and this and that, uh, it may be a good idea to accelerate abruptly or to brake fairly abruptly uh, in a known environment so that you can feel out the traction and start to see what's really down there, how much uh, uh, braking effectiveness you have, how much turning grip you have before you start putting it all out there to go as quickly as you can. Mm, yeah, if you're coming to some sort of difficult spot or maybe even a change of direction or off camber or something like that, I know that I do that. I want to know what I'm dealing with at that point. I mean, even in a vehicle, you, I'll do that on the road. You get into a snowstorm or something. I want to know just how slippery this road is because not all surfaces are the same. In fact, they're, they're quite different. Even if they appear the same, asphalt can be a different sort of stiction from one type to another. Yeah, I can. Uh, you know, melting ice versus uh, ice that's uh, really, really frozen even has a different coefficient of, fric of friction. Uh, say that three times with your mouthful. <laughs> but uh, yeah, so we need to know. And sometimes that's a little disturbing to a passenger <laughs> if we're riding on the road and we suddenly uh, grab a lot of brake or, or just apply a, a good amount of braking uh, progressively. They might say, what are you doing? Well, I'm testing the surface. Well, why are you doing that? I want to know what's here. I want to know what my potential is for uh, breaking and for turning. Now, it is important to remember that you need to know what you're doing when you do this, because I have a little story here. My daughter is with her boyfriend. This is some years back. And he did just that, what he was calling testing the brakes. But maybe he didn't have the skills to be testing the brakes in this, in this particular instance. And it was, uh, I think it was um, a freezing rain out and he tapped the brakes and the car went into a spin, ended up upside down in the ditch. They were okay, ultimately, but that's one of those situations where you have to understand what can happen when you, when you jump on the brakes like that. With a car, you don't have a choice. You're, you're locking up all the wheels, but with a bike, we can choose which wheel we're going to test it with. That's a really good point. You know, your, your rear brake would be the one that you would first want to test this with. It's easier to recover from a rear wheel skid or slide than it is from a front wheel skid or slide. So uh, if you're going to test it, maybe that's a place to start. So without getting into too many details, could you give us some, some examples where the, of the difference between static and kinetic when we would use it when we're riding? Okay. So if I were 
trying to go as quickly as I possibly could on a race course. Um, I would try to stay as close to static friction or traction as I could. I would try to take good lines through the turns, uh, especially if I had a nice loamy surface and I wanted to, uh, uh, to be able to make maximum time. Uh, so that's an ideal in a perfect world scenario. It's very, very difficult to maintain that scenario at all times. And what we end up doing, and you'll see this, uh, say, uh, with uh, off-road racers who are doing uh, uh, circle track, uh, flat track is what I'm trying to say, or a speedway racing. That's sort of an extreme example of just going ahead and embracing the fact that we're going to lose one or both wheels, preferably the rear wheel, and we're going to make the best out of it. So we lean the bike over, we brake the rear loose, either through acceleration or deceleration that is engine braking, uh, or actually applying the rear brake. And once it steps out there, we actually have a stability that is not felt by someone who is not experienced at putting the bike in those conditions. So we initiate a slide, we roll the throttle on, and the bike stays in that slide. And we call that drifting. It's one of the most joyful experiences a, a person can have on a motorcycle. That's true. And and in that example that you just gave of flat track racing, in that maneuver that you're describing there, we have both static and dynamic traction happening at the same time on the same bike. That's true. Uh, preferably, your front wheel will be at or very near a uh, state of static friction most times so that you have constant steering. Now, it may be sliding a little bit. The reality of it is it probably will be sliding just a little bit, but it's more rolling than sliding. The rear is more sliding than rolling. So you are truly in a, uh, a breakaway situation on the rear. But for us normal riders, not flat track racers, do we ever want to have kinetic friction or dynamic friction on the front wheel? Or are we just talking the rear wheel here? There are very few times when you actually would appreciate the front wheel slipping. One of the uses for it in training is to actually demonstrate what it feels like to exceed threshold braking. There is a maneuver that um, a lot of schools use, and that is to squeeze the front brake. This begins at a very low speed, just above the speed of a walk. Squeeze the front brake at the same time that you're rolling on the throttle and engaging the clutch. And it, the front wheel begins to skid. You know, you go basically as far as you can before you release the brake. It's a very good exercise for learning what it feels like and overcoming the fear of a front wheel skid and then recovering from that front wheel skid. Now, a lot of people will have ABS or at least it's becoming more common nowadays. So on the road, you might not experience that. You, you, you get heavy on the front brake and your ABS is, is going to save you. But when you get into the dirt, you're going to have to shut your ABS off in a lot of instances. And that's where you need to be aware of and sensitive to that front wheel locking up, isn't it? Absolutely. Uh, ABS is getting so much better than it ever used to be. And there still exists this uh, competition between good riders and the machine. Uh, I can stop better without ABS than I can with is something that, that you might hear. And for some riders, it might be true. Uh, again, a lot of a lot of factors come into play for that reality. But typically we say turn the ABS off for off-road riding, and that's with a street ABS. Now with modified ABS, uh, for example, BMW Motorrad has a uh, – um, 
a, a pro mode. It's an enduro pro mode that requires you to put the, they call it a chip. It's just a connector in to activate the enduro pro. And this turns off the ABS on the rear of the bike entirely. So you can skid the rear tire at will and it modifies the ABS on the front to a slower, uh, more spread out pulsation so it's a less active abs and uh, it doesn't just let go as so many abs's do if you felt that when you've been off-road and tried to stop a motorcycle on gravel with the abs on mm, you know, it's, it's terrifying we've talked about that before on the show and, and the thing is with, with that front wheel when you're off-road with abs is that it keeps the wheel rolling which is almost what you don't want sometimes because really in, in a, in, in some instances, we want to fast stop. You want the tire to dig in. You want it to, to literally go down into the dirt or into the gravel or whatever it is to try and stop you. That's what you're talking about. Exactly. Mm-hmm. So this Enduro Pro Mode, you must've tried this. Oh yeah. In fact, we demonstrate this in uh, a lot of our classes. Um, we do full on ABS stop demonstration. I don't even take the time to have the students all go through this, but we'll just show what it's like to accelerate to say 25, 30 miles per hour, and then just come on with all the brakes as hard as you possibly can. Uh, It's especially graphic if you use the rear brake only. Often we go beyond our our overrun area Mm -hmm. when it's rear brake only. And so that's that's a great illustration for what ABS does against you when you're trying to stop and then we come back and we do it with the ABS off. They can see the tire skidding, the motorcycle stopping much quicker. When we use ABS, we often think that it will stop us very, very quickly. The problem with it is that we tend not to squeeze and press the brake as hard as we should because we have not practiced threshold braking. And that's why it's so important for everyone, students and and all of us, to practice braking on a regular basis on multiple kinds of terrain because it actually teaches us where that threshold is. And if we practice that without ABS, there is no question in our mind. And then when we have ABS and we need to use it, we will squeeze and press much harder because we will trust the ABS and we know where that point is, even that the ABS has to come into play. We've also talked, and I know this is sort of a side note here, we've also talked about this, about getting on the brakes. Let's say you didn't have ABS, whether it doesn't matter whether you have ABS or not, but when you get on the brakes to begin with, your initial brake that you put on, the initial pressure that you put on, you will have so much friction there, static friction, available at your front wheel, but you'll have more once the the motorcycle transfers the weight to the front wheel, which is very, very quick. So you can almost start with a certain pressure and then add even more pressure once you have the weight transfer. The more you brake, the more you can, ah. to a point. So as you squeeze uh, the front brake, then you that contact patch actually dissipates it spreads just a little bit wider because of the deflection in the tire and you're pressing down harder uh same scenario as if you drug your foot lightly across the ground versus pressing down very hard on your knee with your hands and drug it you want that transition to be smooth not necessarily slow it's a very rapid process but it is a progressive process it's analog it's not digital you're not flipping a switch breaks off to breaks on that's where you get that skipping you transition from immediate um, um, static uh, friction to immediate kinetic friction and the amount of stopping power from the one to the other is significant and you're talking the front wheel only when you just said the more you break the more you can break you're referring to the front wheel only 
Yep, and it's the reverse of that for the rear. The more you brake, the less you can on the rear. We're going to take a short break so I can tell you about a couple of things, but when we come back, we've got more from Bill, and he's going to tell us how we can get more comfortable with less traction. Stay with us. It's one of those things that you mount on your bike and few will notice but you. Because when you hit that open stretch of road and you move your thumb across and press that button, the Atlas throttle lock holds your throttle position so you can just relax. And if you need a little more power, you just roll on some throttle. If you need a little less, you just back it off all by simply twisting your wrist. And the Atlas throttle lock holds your new throttle position each time. It's just a beautiful piece of machinery that clamps onto your bike in minutes. And if you're like me, you're going to find yourself using this thing all the time. Uh, It's got two buttons on it, one for engage, one for disengage. It feels like it should be OEM. It's just a beautiful piece of equipment. And if you decide to sell your bike, it's no problem because it just unbolts in seconds. You can move it over to your other bike. It's it's pretty universal. You're going to love this thing. So why not treat yourself the Atlas Throttle Lock, atlasthrottlelock.com is the website. Anytime you're dealing with them, throw in there that you heard them on Adventure Rider Radio. It's atlasthrottlelock.com. See and be seen. That's the motto at Cyclops Adventure Sports, a family-owned business of motorcycle riders that design and manufacture all kinds of lighting products for motorcycles, also ATVs, bicycles, and, and more. They have stunning auxiliary lights for the bike. They have CAN bus system application sets for BMWs and other kinds of bikes. LED headlight replacements. And these are beautifully made and most importantly, super bright. Now I can talk from experience because I've tried their products. Um, Like their Evo safety turn signal inserts, which um, turn your your turn signals into super bright driving lights in the front, as well as super bright uh, turn signals. And on the back, they become brake lights. I have them on my bike, uh, as well as turn signals on the back. These are stunningly bright. Um, when you step on the brakes uh, on, on this now with my bike, I, I notice it commands attention that only LED can do and only a super bright LED. And the thing is with this system is they've made them absolutely waterproof. Like the, the inserts are waterproof because your signals are not waterproof. And that's one of those small things that make all the difference. That's quality for you. That's when you know the company really cares about their products. The uh, website is cyclopsadventuresports.com. Anytime you're dealing with them, throw in there that you heard them here on Adventure Rider Radio. Cyclopsadventuresports.com. IMS Products has a complete set of adventure motorcycle foot pegs made just for you, for the style you ride, because you can choose from their large ADV1 or ADV2 pegs right on down to their core enduro. All different sizes, all different styles, for all different types of riding. Now, the thing is, if if you're using your stock pegs, you're really missing out because that connection between your foot and that foot peg is paramount. You need to get a quality set of pegs and IMS is that brand that you should be looking at. IMSproducts.com is the website. Anytime you're dealing with them, throw in there that you heard them here on Adventure Rider Radio. IMSproducts.com. So what's better? Static? Or dynamic friction? Well, that's kind of like meat or potatoes, you know. Uh, they go together quite well. <laughs> <laughs> so you want to maintain one or the other depending on what the situation is, what you're trying to accomplish with the motorcycle, and on which end of the motorcycle you're working. It's one of the beauties that, that uh, we still have 
or fortunately, it hasn't all been taken away. And that is the ability to manipulate the, the brakes uh, independent of one another on most motorcycles. Even those that have linked brakes, uh, where when you squeeze the front, you apply some braking to the rear, you still have some control over how much you apply to the rear. Typically, you're going to want to add a little bit more. So um, uh, it's, it's nice to have that option. Now, where one or the other might be important, let's talk about a downhill scenario where we're on maybe grass, a a green grassy surface, maybe the side of a pond dam or something, and we're rolling down that, and then there was a washout towards the bottom, so we have to turn right or left to uh, exit the side of this dam. Well, we're, we're going slowly, our weight is back, Eyes are forward. We're squeezing the front brake. We're pressing the rear brake. We don't want to give up any braking on either end. And now we have to turn. So we're going to, we want to keep the front wheel rolling, but we might need to slide that back tire around just a little bit to aid our turn. The turn may be too tight for us to be able to make otherwise. So we'll apply more pressure to the rear as we're making that right-hand turn to the point that the tire begins to skid sideways downhill, of course. How far does it go? That depends on multiple conditions, the surface, how slick it is, uh, where our feet are based on the foot pegs. Uh, So we may want to help initiate that right-hand turn and skid by applying a little bit of pressure to the inside. That would be the right-hand foot peg. And then as soon as we feel the tendency to break loose, we begin to transition our weight to the left foot peg, which will help stop that skid. And then we exit the turn. And if it goes too far, you could just let off the brake. Yes. If it begins to go too far, you, you want to try to release and roll out. Uh, hopefully, you've already positioned yourself properly so that you can uh, can exit without overshooting. If the back tire doesn't overshoot and go down beyond where you wanted it to. So in that example you just gave, that you're, you're deliberately giving up traction or at least changing from static to dynamic. I, I think you're giving up traction. You're deliberately doing it to maintain control of the bike because otherwise you might try and steer your way through that, which you don't have the traction for in that example, and then the bike goes down. Exactly. Your front wheel can continue to roll in that maneuver. Your back wheel slides, and it takes care of the turning that you were asking the front wheel to do before um, by virtue of the contact patch and the friction that it may or may not have when you're making that turn. Do you ever use the front brake to control your speed while you're doing this? Because you're giving up your traction in the back. The back end starts to come around that can increase your speed because you've given up traction, as I just said. Do you ever use that front brake to control that if you have available traction? Always. And when I say always, there's always an exception to that. But almost always, uh, we actually have an exercise in our training where uh, we do uphills and downs. And on the downhills, we're coming down the backside, we have gates. And the students run through the gates are just cones positioned, staggered left to right, left to right, and then stop blocks within those. So the student will go through a gate and then they'll have to turn fairly steeply, uh, depending on the level of skill of the class, one direction or the other. And then they try to pause at each set of those cones. And, you know, it's easy to just roll down a hill. But it's a lot more difficult to maintain your balance at a snail's pace and then to pause and redirect yourself coming down. So you definitely have to stay on the front brake when you're doing this. What's another example where where this would work, where less traction actually is an advantage? Well, a skid steer turn. um, That's using the rear wheel to help point the bike to the inside of either a decreasing radius turn or to help negotiate a turn that you might have approached at too high a speed. Um, 
Some say that, well, it's a mistake that, you know, that happens and it, it probably is for most of us at most times, but you can actually just use that for fun. Uh, you go blazing into a turn and then you begin to brake. Uh, you might be braking with both wheels, both the front and the rear, but you overbrake to a degree with the rear and then through body position, foot peg pressure, the initiation of the turn, that back tire begins to skid in the appropriate direction to reduce the radius that you're turning. Now, that sort of maneuver that you're just describing, that can also set you up, if you get used to doing that, that can set you up for some security on the street. Oh, my gosh. Uh, So my good friend, Gary Keppel, uh, one of my early uh, fellow contestants in the GS Trophy back in 2008, we had just ridden the LA to uh, uh, Barstow, let's say Barstow to Vegas ride around Thanksgiving that uh, a subsequent year, I think it was 2009 or 2010. And he was on an HP2. I was on a KTM 950 Super Enduro. And we were full of ourselves. We had completed this ride. It was pitch dark. We'd been splitting lanes, coming back to where he lived there in San Diego. And we were in his neighborhood. And I mean, I'm ashamed to say, but uh, we were going a little quicker than the speed limit probably. And it was dark. Gary knew his way pretty well. And, and Gary is an excellent rider. Well, so I was very pleased when I was able to pass him on the ride as he began to this left turn. Well, what I didn't remember going into his neighborhood is that it was a button hook turn, a very tight left turn. And at the speed I was going, there's no way that motorcycle was going to make it. So I'm on both brakes. I'm seeing the curb and the mailbox is coming my way. I began to really overbrake with the rear to the point that the back end drifted out significantly. And through some incredible demonstration of skill and an excess of luck, I managed to, to berm off of the curb and continue through the turn without a scratch. Um, you know, it was doing all the right things at exactly the right time. Uh, and also being very, very lucky. But that dynamic came into play. I was on both brakes scrubbing the speed as much as I could. It was very evident within nanoseconds that I wasn't going to make the turn doing what I was doing. So I just had to give up the rear wheel and continue braking with that to get the bike started into the turn and was successful. Now that example, of course, anybody can listen to that. And, and you said yourself, you're going too fast and you understand that that's human oh. nature. We, we make mistakes and there's other things that happen too. I mean, you could blame it on human nature as well. You, you make a corner and you don't realize it's a decreasing radius corner or something is in the corner. There's a bunch of different scenarios there that can put you into that. But the point was when you hit that brake too hard, I don't think you panicked because you know that feeling of the rear wheel locking up and the bike skidding. That's why you managed to get out. There is a theory that suggests you will not rise to the, in an emergency, you will not rise to the occasion. You will fall back on your training. And so in a situation like that, yes, I mean, I was doing the right things uh, other than the initial wrong thing I did, which is speeding through the neighborhood at night. But uh, you will fall back on what you know is absolutely kind of your last uh, resort to get through this and to make it work. Um, And I mean, I hadn't intended to go flat tracking through the neighborhood at night on pavement. And it's not something that I I ever do really, but because I had the skill to do that, I was able to do that. And and I don't discount luck in that in any way, but someone with less skill and equal luck is probably, they would have hit the mailbox in the curve harder. Mm. So yeah, you fall back on your training. 
Now, just one note with that that we probably should throw in here is that if you do get in a situation where you lock up the rear wheel on pavement, it is usually advisable to hold on to that until you come to a stop because letting off that rear brake can high side you. The MSF teaches that and in true practice and in gradual um, advancement of your training, you can learn when it is and when it is not okay to release that brake. The general rule of thumb is on the rear, if it's sliding and begins to move out off of the, the, the line of your, your direction of travel very much, that you should stay on it until you're completely stopped. Well, we all know that that is to prevent a high side because if you let go, that's when the tire begins to roll. It, it goes from a, from a kinetic friction environment to a it it is seeking and clawing for a static friction environment because now it's rolling as soon as that rolling speed matches um uh, the terrain then the bike can grip and high side um it's probably just as likely that if you stay on the brake and you're going that quickly that you're going to low side now that's better than a high side but there is a large gray area in between there where we can operate and through practice fade in and fade out of it without a problem. Mm -hmm. So uh, practicing this and learning to, uh, to skid a bike um, in a controlled environment is is beneficial both on and off road without question. Yeah. There's another example that's sort of similar to that, except that instead of having the, the wheel locked up and skidding into a corner is where you're accelerating and the wheel starts to spin. Mm -hmm. Can you talk about that? Yeah. In fact, uh, we have a little video that uh, hopefully that uh, our listeners will be able to see. Yeah, we'll post that in the show notes for this episode. Yep. Great. But basically, it's uh, initiating a drift. A drift can be initiated in a couple of different ways. Uh, you can back it in as, as though you were coming in a little bit hot to a turn. You don't have to be going 70 miles an hour. You can do this at 15 or 20 miles an hour. But begin a brake skid turn. A, a brake steer type turn. And then because the bike, the rear tire is already uh, in a, a state of kinetic friction, you can start to roll the throttle on, come on out with the clutch, roll the throttle on, and it continues to slide and drift. Then you simply play with foot peg pressure, body position, throttle, um, a little bit with steering, and you feel it out and you can have a nice 360 degree drift. Mm. Or, or one that surprises you could be, I remember going on an on-ramp one time, um, getting on the highway in, in Vancouver. It was, I think it was winter time, we're getting fairly into winter and it's fine to ride there, but there might've been something slippery. It could have been frozen. I'm not sure what it is, but um, the rear wheel, rear wheel starts to spin and the bike starts to go around. And if you aren't used to that, that can make you panic. But if you, if you, you're sort of comfortable with it, it still doesn't feel very good at all, but you can at least, well, do the same sort of thing as what you did with your road skid. Exactly. And, it, you know, once you practice these things, uh, it, it, it takes a little bit to ramp up to it. You don't want to start out uh, with the most extreme, of course, but everybody wants to do it. Uh, the majority, I should say, of students want to do it. They want to be able to drift. They want to be able to skid, um, so starting out with just a little simple uh, blocking the rear wheel, as the Germans call it, locking up that rear wheel and then applying peg pressure and a little bit of steering in one direction or the other to begin to get that back tire to skid out uh, like a hockey stop. If you were on roller skates or snow skiing, uh, just kind of practice that a little bit and then wrap it up from there. You know, Bill, there's some other advantages I was thinking about when it comes to um, dynamic friction or kinetic friction. When you're spinning the rear wheel, for instance, in a power slide, 
there's a couple of advantages that I can think of. One is clearing the tread if you were into mud or sand or if you were riding in some snow. And the other one is the uh, gyroscopic effect of that rear wheel. So glad you bring that up. Um, we use a wheel, a bicycle wheel, as a demonstration tool for our, our training classes. And we can use this in a number of different ways. But one is, you know, I, I talk about, um, we've heard it said that uh, a motorcycle wants to remain upright. We have to do something to mess that up. And everyone nods their head. Yes, that's true. And then I, I have these two axles that protrude out from this bicycle wheel about oh, 10 or 12 inches on each side. And on one side, I have a couple of washers welded. It makes a, makes a thimble, if you will, that I can put a hook in that's attached to a strap. And I simply put that hook in there and I let go of the wheel and the wheel falls over sideways. So that immediately appears to dispel that myth or what is presented as a myth in that scenario. And then I spin the wheel and I hold this in a very imbalanced situation. This, this thimble is maybe three or four inches off center from this, the center axis of that wheel. And that wheel just spins beautifully around and around and around and very slowly rotates in one direction or the other, depending on which way I've spun, spun the tire. So it's very, very stable because of that rotating mass. And then we get into other things with peg weight on off-camber turns and things that we can demonstrate with those axles. But uh, yeah, a spinning wheel, you know, sand is a real good example. Mud is another one. Uh, you brought up mud. If you have that wheel spinning, you do have a significant increase in stability versus chopping the throttle, putting a foot down and trying to save yourself. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I like that example. You have that. That's really good. Oh, it reminds me of a gyroscope that I got when I was a kid one time for Christmas where, you know, you, you have a string and you wrap around it and you pull it and it spins and it's quite a, it's quite a force, you know, as you try and turn it over, it resists turning. And of course, this stuff is used in, in uh, for flying. You have a pilot's license, don't you? Yes, I'm a flight instructor. Yeah. Isn't there an instrument that you use in there for, uh, in the, in the plane that has a gyroscope in it? There are a number of instruments, the artificial horizon, um, the directional gyro, um, you know, are two examples of that. Uh, even your compass, uh, well, which is the directional gyro, is, is slaved off of the compass or at least set from the compass. Uh, so that, that spinning gyro gives the airplane a point of reference that you can key off of uh, through that instrument to know if you're right side up or not or turning or how, to what degree, uh, pitched up or pitched down without being able to see outside. So the fact that it's used in an instrument, in an airplane, just shows how uh, how reliable it is. So with the rear wheel, that gyroscopic effect, or the front wheel as well, both wheels on the motorcycle and the engine as well. We're talking the whole thing, aren't we? Yeah, that's true. Trials riders are very adept at using the, uh, the rotation of the crankshaft mass, uh, revving that motor to help them stabilize the motorcycle. And won't get deep into that. I don't claim to be great at that anyway, but I understand the principle. Now, um, the other thing I was just, I was going to mention with the, with mud or with sand is that, um, there's also something about staying up on top by doing the spin. That's another advantage of kinetic friction. It tends to keep you up on top. So it tends to float on things that you would otherwise sink in. You drive into some mud that, um, in particular, you know, with four wheeling, you find this, and this is actually where I discovered it is with four wheeling. I found that, that some tires actually got more traction the more that I spun them. Whereas if you tried to go slow, it just ends up sitting down deep in the mud. So there's some, a, a bit of flotation you get from that, from the spin. A big part of what's happening there is um, 
it's thrust as much as it is traction. We all know on sand, you know, if you take your hand and you, you scoop it across sand, you know, you get a little bit of resistance there, but the sand moves very easily. But if you've shoveled sand or shoveled snow and you get a, get a, a large load of it and you try to sling it uh, horizontally across the ground, it doesn't take long that you're going to feel those muscles the next day that you were using to sling that sand. The action-reaction of displacing that sand provides thrust, much like a jet engine or uh, a, the jet thrust on a um, water-driven uh, watercraft, um, so where it has a jet drive. So when we're, we're, we throw this plume of sand behind us, uh, it goes 40, 50 feet back, then that's driving the motorcycle forward. And because of the rotation of the tire, of that rear tire in the, the amount that it is digging in, and just as braking pushes our weight forward, acceleration moves our weight backwards, that lifts that front tire to a degree, allowing us to maintain some directional stability there too. So you've employed a lot of different forces whenever you apply a lot of throttle uh, in sand. You get the gyroscopic effect, the stability that comes from that spinning tire. That's why when you begin to lose control in sand, the front end begins to dive a little bit and you roll the throttle on, it spools up that rear tire. You get some stability from that. It also lifts the front tire slightly, which gives you a little bit of steering and and removes that plow action to some degree from the sand. And then if you apply opposite peg weight, uh, to the direction the bike was trying to plow in and fall, that also helps to straighten the bike up. So you're, you're putting all these things together and creating um, the ability to do this automatically and naturally. Yeah, that's where practice comes in. <laughs> you know, it's and great. Faith. <laughs> it's, it's, those are great examples. And it really makes it obvious the way you explained it there. And again, this is when you're deliberately losing traction to all your advantages, all these things that you've talked about. Yep, that's exactly right. So how do you get comfortable losing traction in the, and I guess we're talking about two different ways, aren't we? Two different ways of losing traction. Braking and, and, uh, acceleration. And acceleration. Is that mm-hmm. Yeah. How do we get comfortable doing it? Well, as with most things, um, a little at a time. Now there is a leap of faith when you get into sand, it requires more aggression than, um, say doing this on loamy dirt or something like that. But uh, start out with a, um, a, a flat surface, a skid pad, if you will, or a nice open backcountry road that has visible turns. Um, there's not a risk of, of meeting traffic oncoming, and your overrun is good. A safe area, start with that is all I'm saying. And then accelerate to maybe 15 to 20 miles per hour and simply block the rear wheel. Bring your weight back, move your body back as far as you can. You will be limited by either the articulation of your ankle, your body type, obstacles on the bike, either loaded or the the, uh, way the bike is set up with a high pillion or something. But move your weight back as far as you can. Eyes forward and simply skid in a straight line. Back wheel only. Don't touch the front brake. And then progressively begin to step a little bit on one side or the other of the foot peg and start the turn just as you apply that rear brake. So you're initiating a turn and you're off, you're imbalancing the motorcycle deliberately by stepping on the foot peg towards the direction you're trying to turn. And you'll feel that back end begin to drift out a little bit. 
do this very progressively, multiple, multiple times. Don't become one-sided in this. Practice one direction and then the other. Most of us have one side that works better for us than others. Um, some, it seems like most people, it's, they, they can do this better to the left than the right. You know, we can talk about the reasons why it doesn't really matter right now. But practice that, skidding one direction and then the other. And then that will get you started in the braking application. From there, start with applying power. And a good marbly road, somewhat uh, along the, the description that I had before, or a skid pad that's got kind of a marbly surface is really good because the bike breaks loose very, very easily. And if it's consistent, so you don't have ruts and, and on and off uh, traction points there, that's better too, so you don't get the surprises. But simply roll along, maybe 20, 25 miles per hour, and you need a bike with enough thrust to do this, uh, or you have to be much more aggressive with a lower-powered bike, but simply lean forward as you're beginning to accelerate so that you remain balanced as far as your body position on the bike and then roll on the throttle just spinning in a straight line slow the bike down spin it slow the bike down begin to lean just a little bit and apply a bit of foot peg pressure just as you did in the braking and you'll feel that back end step out and you can gradually sweep left and then sweep right sweep left and sweep right once you've gotten fairly competent and comfortable at just stepping it out a little bit. You need to become more aware of your body position, keeping your not leaning way in, but keeping your body position relatively vertical relative to the, uh, the motorcycles lean. And then your foot peg pressure to the inside will increase your skid. Your foot peg pressure to the outside will decrease the skid. If you feel like you're going a little bit too far with it. And then finally, squeezing your knees into the fuel tank area. So your chin is over the handlebars almost. It's over the steering nut thereabouts. You're rolling on the throttle. You're beginning to spin the back tire. You're stepping on an inside peg, and you're squeezing your knees into the fuel tank. And although I did this by practice, I must give credit to my friend Dusty Wessels of West 38 Moto, who really drives this home. Your hands relax when you do this. And you can literally, once you reach a certain level of competency, just let go with one hand and lean into it, squeeze your knees, and you can roll into a, to a, a light drift like this because you're perfectly balanced you've practiced up to that point to the to where you've gotten comfortable with it it's a blast mm. yeah and w- one thing i was going to say is you mentioned about the surface one thing you'd want to be careful of is that the surface is the same that you're trying on so a mistake would be to try it on a, a spot that goes from dirt to grass for instance yes that's what i was referring to when i said make sure the surface is consistent yeah. uh, in so far as possible and it doesn't have to be gravel uh, it it doesn't have to be grass it doesn't have to be dirt but it's just nice if you're not going from gravel to grass to dirt it can be a, a little bit of a surprise it'll be a surprise yeah you'll you have a certain amount of traction then when you hit the grass you have far less and then you can end up uh, having things happen that you didn't want to have you, you know what i find is it's best to practice this or when i do it the most is when my tire is bald when i've worn my tire or my rear tire out and I figure I'm done. I'm about to change it. Well, then I go around and I rip around like this because it, it, it doesn't matter. And that is, that's true. The, the higher traction, uh, the better tread you have, the higher the traction that you will have when you're doing this. And that tries to defeat you because it tries to hook up and that causes you to need more aggression, more throttle, more braking, more lean on the same, any given surface. So yeah, ball tire is a nice thing. And if you do this enough, you'll have it. Yeah, no, and I was thinking that I don't want to waste my tire because when my tire's new, I like that sharp feeling of, the, of that new tread and I want to keep it that way as long as possible. So that's not the time I'm skidding around. Yeah, 
I don't know. <laughs> I, I I agree with the prince, the premise of saving your tire, you know, especially if you're about to go out for a long trip. But hey, that's an expendable. That's something that you use for fun. So right, right. Uh, yeah. uh, now I have a question for you because you talked about um, breaking the rear wheel loose when you're doing a power slide. What if you have a low horsepower motorcycle? So you can you can still get bursts uh, by, of course, revving the engine and feeding the clutch in. Your speeds will be lower, probably. Uh, the other thing that you can do once you've become comfortable at this, and if we're talking about the acceleration, that's the only place the power make, makes a difference anyway, um, is once you're comfortable at breaking it loose at the lower speed, you gradually increase your speed. And then the degree of, of the turn, the sharpness of the turn, you can still drift. Uh, I mean, you can go out on a, on a 125 four-stroke motor and you can still drift with this. But it will require a little bit more speed so that the that sliding action or, or tendency of that bike to slide to the side is greater. Um, and it still works. I mean, the, the power still helps you with that. It's just not as easy as if you have a 134 horsepower. Right. So you, are you more skilled then if you're doing it with a KLR than a, you know, a 1200? <laughs> Boy, that's a loaded question because <laughs> you can get is. too much throttle. <laughs> I will just say that for me, I find it easier to drift my um, my BMW uh, 1250 than I would my old KLR. Right. And of course, the, the multiple cylinders helps too. Well, I guess so. I mean, there's that that whole uh, impulse of the um, of the uh, single cylinder motor, uh, but then you get into 270 degree and beyond crankshafts that simulate that, and that gets beyond my scope. I'm afraid. Right. Right. Well, is there anything else we we should be talking about with this? Oh my goodness, Jim! You know, you could go on and on about this. Uh, I would say keep it simple. Uh, it's it's such fun to do. Um, you know, I think that um, liability is one of the reasons that, uh, for example, the MSF dirt bike courses don't do a lot of this type of training. It's a personal responsibility thing. You know, when we talk about going out and practicing this way, we're saying take your motorcycle from a stable situation, an environment that you're familiar with, and put it into a slide, something you're not familiar with, that requires some degree of speed and aggression that you may not be familiar with. There is a leap of faith there. There is a transition that you want to ease into as much as you can uh, and wear good gear when you're doing this. I mean, certainly strike point protection, good boots, uh, step away from the motorcycle if you lose it. And this is a common issue, especially in sand. Feet and lower legs are number one point of injury. And two things that can really reduce that besides trying not to fall at all. And that is stepping away from the motorcycle when you begin to lose it. We're trying to do feet on the pegs, power slides. And yet when that motorcycle goes out from under us, if we keep that foot on the peg all the way down and our toe is slightly pointed out at all, catches the ground, it's a, it's a lower leg spiral fracture. So good boots, stepping away from the motorcycle, good strike point protection, helmets, gloves, all the things that you need, and a friend nearby that can, uh, you know, at least pick you up and dust you off until you look great right up until the end. <laughs> I'm glad you said that because my, my last thing to ask you was about going down and, and how to prepare for that because there is the possibility, as you, as you said with this, obviously. Now, can you just talk about footwear for this sort of thing? Because I, I think that's really important. Yeah. Um, so again, uh, feet, lower legs are the number one point of injury in, in my understanding for motorcyclists on road and off, uh, not necessarily injury leads to death, but that's an area to really protect. So, um, 
how good do you need your footwear to be? Well, how fast should you go in that corner? Um, you know, should you ride in the rain? These are subjective questions and decisions that only you can make. However, there is a certain amount that should be a minimum. Uh, any boot that says adventure is probably leaning in the right direction for adventure riders. Uh, you know, Forma uh, makes an adventure boot uh, on the lower cost level. CD Adventure makes a, a little better quality boot. It has a hinged ankle to uh, help with articulation rather than just the soft leather there. And then as you move on up the scale of the Alpenstar Toucan also within that realm, and I'm not a boot expert. These are some that I've, I've had experience with. But you move on up the scale, you get into something like a full-on motocross boot, an Alpenstar Tech 7 or Tech 10 uh, CD crossfires and boots in that genre. You get much more protection, especially against ankle hyperextension or compression or foot compression, lower leg compression. No boot can do everything that should be done to prevent rotation, that spiral action that comes to, into play whenever you catch a toe against the side of a rut, a rock, a root, or the ground when you're falling. So wear the best boot that you feel you can be comfortable in. Talk to your friends uh, and about their boots. But some people are very opinionated but low on experience, so you know, take that into account. But definitely wear good boots. Wear the best that you can afford and the best that feel comfortable to you to wear so that they're not so stiff that you won't wear them. All right. Well, Bill, that was great. That was good fun. Thank you very much. I really appreciate you taking your time and, uh, and helping us out with this. Well, it's certainly my pleasure, Jim. And it's a, a topic that I could talk about a lot and I enjoy doing it. I feel uh, very blessed to be able to do it. Uh, as much as I can. So uh, thank you for the opportunity. And again, we're going to put uh, that, uh, we'll put it embed that video in the show notes for this episode. So you can go there and see, and it's you doing this kid, isn't it? Yeah. It's on my KTM 790 Adventure R. Mm -hmm. Very nice. Thanks again, Bill. I appreciate it. You bet. Thank you, Jim. That was Bill Dragoo from Dart Dragoo Adventure Rider Training in Norman, Oklahoma. You can find out more about what they do at BillDragoo.com. And we've got that video as well that Bill mentioned in our show notes, as well as some other photos on this topic, all in the show notes for this episode at our website, AdventureRiderRadio.com. Hey, I just want to remind you that this episode has been brought to you by Green Chili Adventure Gear, greenchiliadv.com, Motobreeze Chain Oiler at motobreeze.com, and Best Rest Products at cyclepump.com. And we'd really appreciate it if anytime you're dealing with these companies, anytime, email or otherwise, let them know you heard them here on Adventure Rider Radio. Well, that about wraps up another episode of Adventure Rider Radio, and we sure hope you enjoyed listening to it as much as we did making it. Special thanks to our producer, Elizabeth Martin, and to you. Thank you very much for being a part of this show by listening to it. Hey, if you're not doing it already, if you're not supporting the show, this show is built on a model of advertising and listener support to make the whole thing work. We need you to drop by our website, adventureriderradio.com, and click on support. Anything $10 or more gets you a sticker sent at you for your toolbox, your pannier, whatever. Um, Anything $50 or more gets you a shout out on our Raw show, and 
And we also have our Patreon account, which we would love to get you to sign up for. You can put any amount there. It just means that you're you're supporting the show each month. I mean, think about what you spend on a cup of coffee and what that costs you each day, the amount you spend each day, and then each week, and what you're getting from that, and then what you're getting from the show. And, uh, and just do that little math in your head. Anyway, time to get out there and ride your bike if you can. Thank you very much once again uh, for listening to this. I really appreciate it. My name is Jim Martin, and I will talk to you next week. Hi, my name is Carolis Melauskas from the Coldest Ride, and you are listening to Adventure Ride Radio. (laughs) 